0: He, Nida Ksoili, Channel Africa, Ikitangaza, Kutoka Johannesburg.
1: This is Africa Digest.
2: Good evening and welcome to Africa Digest. This is Channel Africa giving you news from an African perspective. We're broadcasting to you from our studios in Johannesburg, South Africa, and we're online on www.channelafrica.co.za. My name is Samora Mangesi in studio with Zwelani Tulo, Tracy Boomgaard, and Neto Chimani. Some top stories on Africa Digest at this hour: the UN nation, the United Nations mission in South Sudan, warns that the new peace deal may collapse if crucial issues that remain unresolved are not solved as soon as possible. The government of Eswatini uh, secures an interdict to stop the protest action by government workers. In economics, Zimbabwe's Reserve Bank hopes to raise $300 million since it resumed treasury bills auction uh, in August. And in sport, Uganda set to compete in the African Netball Cup taking place in South Africa later this month. But right now, let's cross on over to the news desk. Here is Zwalani Tullo with your latest news bulletin.
3: S.A.B.C. News, independent
4: and impartial.
3: From an African perspective.
5: Thank you, Samora. Good afternoon. South Africa and Nigeria have resolved to set up early warning mechanisms to prevent any future outbreaks of violence against foreign nationals in South Africa. This has emerged at the joint media briefing by President Cyril Ramaphosa and his Nigerian counterpart Muhammadu Buhari in the capital Pretoria. Buhari's visit to the country was overshadowed by recent by the recent spate of attacks on foreign nationals. This has exacerbated the already strained relations between Africa's powerhouses. President Cyril Ramaphosa says. The police and intelligence units have been roped in to help in preventing future attacks.
6: Make sure that we bring an end to these. We have agreed that we are going to set up mechanisms between our two countries. Early warning mechanisms will be set up so that once we see that there is restiveness in both our people's sort of sides, we will be able to inform one another. Find active ways of ensuring that we do not have recurrences. We will cooperate at a number of levels, including at the policing level, the intelligence sharing information level. So those are some of the various measures we will take place.
5: Meanwhile, Buhari has called on his country's nationals in South Africa to abide by the rules of their host country. Buhari was reacting to reports that some of his countrymen are involved in illegal activities in South Africa. Currently, a Nigerian pastor, Timothy Motoso, is facing charges allegedly relating to racketeering, human trafficking, rape, and sexual assault involving women as young as 14 years old. Some Nigerians in the country are also accused of dealing in drugs. President Buhari says all foreign nationals in the country must respect the laws of their host countries. For those Nigerians that
3: are here or elsewhere, I think Nigerians know the stand of the leadership, that when you are in Rome, you do what the Romans do. When you are in a country, you study the people and the laws and you get yourself in line with what the authorities and the people accept there. If you do anything outside people, eventually, they will not accept it. So it means that our respective police forces and security agencies must be very alert. They must infiltrate the communities, know their thinking, and make sure they don't allow violence to escalate.
5: Nearly 600 refugees have left Tanzania to return to their homes in neighboring Burundi on Thursday, thus according to the United Nations. This is the first batch in a mass repatriation that some migrants fear could force them back against their will. Hundreds of thousands of Burundians fled a surge of political violence in 2015 when President Piangurunziza ran for a third disputed term in office and opponents accused him of breaching the constitution. A UN commission on Burundi reported last month that there was risk of a fresh wave of atrocities as the landlocked state approached a 2020 election with its political crisis unresolved. However, Burundi and Tanzania have agreed in August to start repatriating 200,000 refugees, saying the conditions in Burundi had improved. Security forces in the Iraqi capital Baghdad have fired live rounds to break up protesters who are defying a curfew that has been in place since dawn. The ban on movement around the city was imposed by the Prime Minister in an attempt to stem angry demonstrators over employment and rampant corruption. At least 13 people have been killed since the protest and violent on Tuesday and spread to other cities. And finally, a knife-wielding man has killed four officers at central police headquarters in Paris and France. The attacker, who has not been named but is said to be a member of staff, was later shot dead by police. There has been no official statement so far. The attack comes a day after police went on strike across France over increasing violence towards officers. The BBC's Lucy Williamson has the story.
7: A police union spokesman said the attacker had been shot dead by an officer at the scene. Another police source said he was thought to have been a member of their own administrative staff. The man approached the building on the Ile de la Cité at the heart of Paris around 1pm this afternoon. The area has now been sealed off. The attack comes a day after police staged a national demonstration against rising violence towards officers and rising rates of suicide in the force.
5: Headlines at 5.30 for Channel Africa. I'm Jolani Tulo.
3: SABC
8: News. Independent and impartial from an African perspective.
5: perspective.
8: SABC News. Independent and impartial
5: from an African perspective. perspective.
9: Jina na naitwa Sho naipenda sana radio channel Africa taswira ya Afrika Channel Africa ndio radio ya Afrika Tegosio kwa habari na matukio duniani kutoka mjini Johannesburg Mimi ni mwanamuziki kutoka Afrika Kusini Afrika Mashariki Shikamo DIC Sangonini bamama na batete. Sasa, mimi,
2: The United Nations mission in South Sudan is warning that the new peace deal may collapse if crucial issues that remain unresolved are not solved as soon as possible. The warning comes at a time when Sudan and South Sudan are holding a two day discussion on the opening of 10 crossing points at the border separating the two neighboring countries. James Shimanyula reports
10: As the countdown to the formation of a government of national unity, on November 12, continues in South Sudan. The head of the United Nations mission there, David Sierra, is expressing fear that the new peace deal is likely to collapse unless all crucial issues are resolved by President Salva Kiir and his main political opponent, Riek Machar. Speaking at a press conference in South Sudan's capital, Juba, Shortly after returning from New York where he briefed the United Nations Security Council on the current situation in Africa's newest nation, David Sierra echoed the remarks he made at the UN Security Council and tersely touched on some of the issues that require to be resolved
11: now. Issues of unifying the armed forces and decisions around states and boundaries still need to be resolved. Members spoke strongly about their need for parties to fulfil their commitment to move to a transitional government on the 12th of November. We know there are complex issues that may be outstanding, but there's no reason that these issues cannot be taken up by our transitional government meeting as a unified body of opposition and government. In the coming
10: six weeks. Flashing back to the recent visit to South Sudan by opposition leader Riek Machar Sierra Said.
11: The recent visit of Dr. Riek Machar to Juba at the invitation of President Salva Kiir was an important development. The face to face meetings, which many of us believe are fundamental to moving forward, provided an opportunity to discuss critical, unresolved parts of the peace agreement. Importantly, they recommitted to forming the transitional government, a positive step because it maintains the momentum of peace and bolsters confidence among South Sudanese. The challenge remains, of course, is to show tangible results. And three areas in particular require progress. The unification of security forces. Of the 35 cantonment sites planned, 23 are now occupied by opposition forces and 10 by the government.
10: And this is how Sierra described the peace process in South Sudan, the very peace process that was put in place shortly after President Salva Kiir and Riek Machar signed a new peace agreement in Khartoum, Sudan last year.
11: The peace process remains precarious, but progress is being made. Maintaining momentum is the absolute key. And that depends very much on the continuing goodwill of the parties, as well as the collective and unrelenting focus of international friends to support the formation of a transitional government. Criminality remains a serious problem with random attacks on civilians, commonly by unpaid soldiers and former combatants.
10: David Sierra also brought to light the urgent need for the Juba government to find quick ways of settling the displaced
11: people. It is the responsibility of the South Sudanese government to establish the conditions for displaced families to return safely and indignity.
10: That was the head of the United Nations Mission in South Sudan, David Sierra. Meanwhile, members of Sudan and South Sudan Political and Security Committee are in the capital Juba to discuss the opening of border crossing areas between the two neighboring countries. Sudan and South Sudan have 10 border crossing points. Two weeks ago, South Sudan President Salva Kiir met sudan's prime minister abdallah hamduk in Juba. they agreed to open the border separating the two countries reporting for channel africa this is james shimanula
2: Nigerian President Muhammadu Buhari has kicked off his three-day state visit to South Africa. The visit, the first by a Nigerian leader since 2013, comes after incidents of violence in South Africa targeted at both locals and foreign nationals. The violence, in which at least 12 people were killed, sparked fury in Nigeria and saw hundreds of migrant workers repatriated to their country. The visit is taking place under the theme Forging a New Era in Collaboration Between South Africa and Nigeria. For more on the significance of Buhari's visit, Channel Africa spoke to Dr. Achu Chek, researcher at the Africa Institute of South Africa.
12: Let's put this particular visit in perspective first is that uh, we should understand that uh, Nigeria and South Africa established uh, a binational commission sometime when Nigeria returned to democracy in 1999 and this particular binational commission is actually chaired at the presidential level so which means both president do chair this uh, bi-national commission and this binational commission usually holds twice, uh, I mean once in two years so to speak alternating between Lagos and Abuja and and. and So this particular visit was actually within that particular framework of that binational commission. So it was definitely not as a result of what happened the past month or so. And then secondly, as you do mention, I think um, it is also important also that we look at this visit within the the rim of what happened in uh, South Africa, as many people call it, xenophobic attack, you know, last month in South Africa. So I think this particular visit will definitely beside the various agenda items that have been um, discussed prior to this particular meeting by the various technical committees within the bi-national Commission the issue of immigration would definitely come up as a result of what happened you know in South Africa you know last month so yeah so it is very very significant and and, and again one should also understand that as you do mention as well that the, the, these are poor blogs and uh, these are poor countries in Africa Mm -hmm. Uh, South Africa is hosting or is chairing the African Union next year. and, uh, And the team next year is actually silencing the guns. And uh, South Africa and Nigeria have been working, you know, tirelessly, you know, to to quench fires in the various, you know, regions across the continent. South Africa, uh, South Africa here in the Southern African sub-region, and Nigeria in the Sahel and West Africa. So, basically, this this visit is very significant in, in those two uh, uh, critical aspects.
2: Now, Dr. Sam, say it is just a matter of time before the two nations are at each other's throats again. Do you think that this visit will achieve its objectives? of resetting the button in bilateral ties after years of acrimony and tensions.
12: You know, uh, uh, international politics is usually, especially within the African continent, is usually characterized, you know, what many will call within the uh, uh, realist term or, or realm where, you know, a particular country or, you know, will try to assert its power mm. uh, over another. And I want to believe that in far as these two countries exist on the African continent we will definitely, you know, uh, be hearing about uh, who, who can speak on behalf of the continent, who is a major power broker within international politics when it comes to African issues, blah, 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 and so on and so forth. So, you know, uh, these are issues that are definitely not going to go away, because as we've seen, you know, uh, since the 1960, before South Africa, it was Nigeria and other African countries, for example, Kenya, Senegal, Egypt, Algeria. But with South Africa coming into the fore in 1994, you know, uh, things also take another step, you know, forward. And mm-hmm. because of South Africa's uh, sophisticated economy and so on and so forth, you know, Nigeria, actually, you know, uh, because they do, the, before then, Nigeria has been calling the shots on the continent. And when South Africa, you know, entered into the inter- international arena and South Africa was now being regarded as, so to speak, the voice of Africa when it comes to international issues, you know, it actually pain Nigeria, so to speak. So, Nigeria, uh, insofar as, uh, you know, the two economies are growing at the rate at which it is growing, the, the issue of, of Nigeria or South Africa being at the neck of, 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 of each, always be there, as realists will always say it.
2: Buhari is also expected to push Ramaphosa to pay reparations for the Nigerians impacted by the recent violence. Do you think that uh, South African authorities will consider this, or do you think yeah. they will reject the democracy outright.
12: Uh, some of these issues... Definitely be handled within the various technical committees of the binational uh, commission. But I really don't want to believe that uh, South Africa will go that route to even start discussing I- issues like that. Mm. You know, yeah, definitely it's no, it's never going to happen. Yeah, I think what they will actually talk about, which from which is from what I gathered, is to stem Nigeria's immigration to South Africa. You know, I think what 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 will actually happen is. You know that the Nigerian, uh, the South African Minister of Home Affairs will, you know, will definitely have a talk with the Nigerian authorities to actually ensure that. Um, uh, Nigerians really don't come to South Africa, they will, you know I, I mean like what they call illegal immigration so to speak to mm. term, illegal immigration to South Africa and that whatever kind of visits or, or people, Nigerians visiting, visiting South Africa should be within within a specific framework era in terms of trade, in terms of, you know, scientific cooperation in terms of academic exchange and so on and so forth. So basically those are some of the areas in you know, especially immigration that are what I think and what I've uh, heard from uh, friends within working with some of these committees, that those are issues that they are definitely going to talk about, that, that they will put steps in place to actually stem illegal immigration.
2: And that was Dr. Achu Chek, researcher at the Africa Institute of South Africa. The government of Eswatini has secured an interdict to stop the protest action by government workers. Angry teachers and government workers clashed with police yesterday as they rallied to demand better pay and lower living costs in Africa's last absolute monarchy. Demonstrations began last week and the Swaziland Federation of Trade Unions had vowed to continue with the protests until workers' demands are met. For more on this, Channel Africa spoke to Sikelela Zamini, General Secretary of the Swaziland National Association of Teachers.
0: For now, as the national leadership of all the unions that organize in the public sector, we have since organized a meeting where we are going to be meeting our general councils our branch and regional leaders. Um, we are going to be filing papers with regards to the interdict. Yes, we will do that. But we know that the government has not actually interdicted the industrial actions or activities within the strike itself. They've, they've interdicted the whole strike, which means activities such as meetings, such as petition delivery, mm-hmm. activities such as tickets, those have not been interdicted and since the government up to now has not actually met our demands it means we've got to continue piling up pressure on the government maybe by way of petition delivery activities, yeah, well, while on the other hand, we'll still be pursuing the very same nature through the courts.
2: Government spokesperson Percy Similane said last week that police will open an investigation into the recent demonstrations and uh, that offenders would face justice. How do you respond to this?
0: As a union, we we also condemn violence. We must say we, own, we condemn the form of violence, whether it has been started by the police or by some of us as workers. We condemn it in the strongest possible terms. And as unions want to say, we are also going to do our own investigation because we are prepared to even compile a long report, a big report that we are going to be sending to international organizations where we are affiliated to so that the issues of the workers could actually be deliberated upon at that particular level. When the government spokesperson. It is those perpetrators for the violence are going to be brought to book. But we are also saying we are also conducting our own independent investigation so that we ensure that people are not being smeared about something that they have not done to say they, they did those things.
2: Secretary, have the workers been united in the protests? And the reason that I ask this is that there's a general perception that one of the reasons that the protests have not been effective is because workers are not united, which makes it difficult to put pressure on the government to listen to the concerns of the workers.
0: Well, if I may open up to you, Mm -hmm. the number of those workers or employees who are under the government, we are about 25,000, those that are unionized. Yes. But if you talk about those that are not unionized, the senior government officials, the, the essential services, the police, we are over 44,000. Now, with those of us who are unionized, those who, whom I'm saying are about 25,000, the challenge has been that While we were engaging on a legal and legitimate strike, the government, on the other hand, was actually uh, doing some some strategies, uh, pursuing some of those ways and issuing threats uh, to those people who uh, wanted to join the strike. Let me me take for an example: the government has always been saying, time and again, over the print and electronic media, that whosoever is going to partake in the legitimate strike is going to they are going to affect the. No work, no pay. And if you talk about no work, no pay, obviously to an employee whose salary is, is worse off by 20% as we speak, mm. then that particular person will, will think twice. And uh, over and above that, the government has, has crafted some instruments, they are known as data collection forms. So through these data collection forms, they are taking a register of all those that are not going to participate in the strike action now the, the, then that cultivates the fear within the membership to say yes is a legitimate strike Yes, is a fundamental right. Uh, yes, it is. It is. Everything has been done according to the legal provisions of the labor laws of the country. But I'm afraid because at the end of the month, I'm not going to be paid my salary. I'm not. I won't be able to meet my my financial obligations. Over and above the fact that even currently we are unable to meet our financial obligations because our salaries have been eroded. So I am trying to say there has been that demotivating factor mm-hmm. orchestrated by the government, but from from what we've seen, because we've been able to bring to the streets over 10,000 people. Now, the population of Southland is being 1.3 million people. If you talk about 10,000 people being on the streets one day in one city, to us is a huge number, and the voices of those people cannot be disregarded in this instance.
2: Have there been any protesters that have been arrested so far in connection with the strike?
0: Yes, yes. There have been those arrested, if I may say, yesterday, three of our protesters, of our comrades were arrested, although they were then discharged because I I guess the police were fearing to actually spill fuel Already painting fire, mm. they decided to record the statements and then release them. But uh, they are cases that are uh, uh, they, they are supposed to be taken court and next week Tuesday. One of them is next week, Tuesday. The others are yet to, to find out about those final details. But they were arrested and uh, they have been slapped with charges such as damage to property, starting off fires. I don't know other charges, but. Uh, You can actually see that those churches, they are trumped-up churches.
4: The idea is to cultivate fear on the workers and would-be protesters.
2: That was Sigelela Zlamini, General Secretary of the Swaziland National Association of Teachers. The Democratic Republic of Congo's Fight for Change civil movement, well known as Lucha, has launched a sensitization campaign to try and stop Ebola in the east of the country. The Bib and Call campaign, launched on Wednesday in Butembo in the North Kivu province, aims to boost the repost action against the spread of an outbreak that has killed more than 2,000 people in that part of the DRC. John Nolbamweze reports from Kinshasa.
9: The sensitization campaign to try and stop the Ebola outbreak spread in the North Kivu province on other provinces of the Democratic Republic of Congo and out of the country was launched in Mususa in the Butembo territory. Butembo is indeed one of the most affected territories of the North Kivu. The disease that started in August 2018 has killed more than 2,000 of the more than 3,000 patients affected in one year. The Fight for Change movement, well-known as Lucha, then believes that the beep and call campaign will help more people to know more about the Ebola epidemic and to avoid spreading it. Espoan Galuki is one of the Lucha spokespersons.
4: We are calling it beep and call. It means beep and call. So if you don't have airtime in your phone, you can just call our number and we will call you after to explain you what's about Ebola. You ask us any question about Ebola, since yesterday we've received many calls from different people who are in Goma, in Tempo, in Delhi, where Ebola is since a year right now. This is what we can do for our country, for Africa and for all the world. As we are not an NGO, as we are not doctors, this is what we can do for our country to fight against Ebola.
9: Most of inhabitants in the Ebola-affected areas, including Beni and Butembo, didn't welcome the reposted teams, and that's one of the challenges in those areas. People were not cooperating, and this attitude made it very difficult for the reposted teams to work, and as a consequence, the Ebola spread so easily since the teams couldn't access the contacts of the contacts and attacks against the teams have been reported in the part of this country. This was due to a lack of trust by inhabitants and the lucha civil movement is really working on that behavior. Once more this lucha spokesperson is Poorangaluki explains.
4: Many people didn't trust they were thinking that it's just a business which was built in our country by angels, by other people. But since what we started Talking to people about Ebola, we do just have one question to those people who trust on Ebola. The question is, do you trust HIV exists? Everyone say, yes, it exists. And the second question is, how do we know that HIV exists? Nobody has the the answer on this question. They say, because doctor say, because it exists really. And the same thing on Ebola, we say, Ebola exists.
9: Ebola exists many years in our country. Meanwhile, the United States of America's government is bringing its support through the Ebola report actions. That's indeed what the Secretary of the U.S. Health Department told the press conference here in
8: Kinshasa. Alex Asset. The United States, under the leadership of Dr. Mayambi and working with the World Health Organization, sponsored a clinical trial with four different products being tested on individuals who were suffering from Ebola in the Eastern Democratic Republic of the Congo. And the interim results of this clinical trial were successful, that the ethical board stopped the clinical trial so that individuals would in the future only receive the two most successful products, one of them known as monoclonal antibody 114, and um, another one is a product uh, sponsored by the pharmaceutical company Regeneron. And at this point, those two products are in what is called breakthrough status review by the United States Food and Drug Administration. And those two products are now available and are being administered to individuals who produce present themselves with Ebola in the affected area. This is indeed
9: the 10th Ebola outbreak that has hit the Democratic Republic of Congo. But it's the very first time for people of the North Kivu and other eastern provinces to be affected. Jean-Noel Bamweze for Channel Africa in Kinshasa.
2: And now it's time for your headlines. Here is Zholani Tulo.
3: S.A.B.C. News, independent and impartial. From From an African
5: perspective. Thank you, Samora. Making headlines, South Africa and Nigeria have resolved to set up early warning mechanisms to prevent any future outbreaks of violence against foreign nationals in South Africa. Nearly 600 refugees have left Tanzania to return to their homes in neighbouring Burundi on Thursday. That's according to the United Nations. And finally, a knife-wielding man has killed four officers at Central Police Headquarters in Paris in France. For Channel Africa, I'm Jolani Tulo. SABC
3: News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective.
2: The South African non profit organization Reach for Recovery is drumming up for support in a bid to raise funds for its initiative that targets breast cancer survivors from underprivileged backgrounds. The Power of Pink campaign will run throughout this month, which is marked as Breast Cancer Awareness Month. The campaign is in aid of the Ditto Project, which provides underprivileged women who have undergone mastectomies with silicone breast prosthetics. Uh, More from uh, Stephanie Jacobs, the chairperson of Reach for Recovery.
13: We know that from findings and research that more than 8,000 women each year in South Africa go through this traumatic experience.
14: That's what we told about the incidents. Help us understand what the DETO Project and the Power of Pink campaigns are and how they've helped breast cancer survivors since they were first
13: started. You know, the DETO Project came into being in 2011 with a purpose of giving comfort and dignity to underserved women in our country. And the way that we do this is to provide them with a high-quality silicone breast prosthesis. So uh, the thinking behind all of this is for those who don't know about the implications of breast cancer is that when a woman is diagnosed and when she loses a breast, one or two, it can be a very daunting and quite a difficult and disruptive experience. And it can leave her with physical scars and emotional scars. And reach for recovery has been started exactly to support her on a journey, to hold her hand, so that she can just regain her confidence and self-esteem again. And as you can understand, for many women, this would be so closely linked to a return to their pre-mastectomy appearance and body image. They've lost their breast and, you know, the recovery certainly is so much focus on just looking the same you did as before the surgery. For the benefit of
14: some of our listeners who are not familiar with the concept, what exactly is the silicone breast prosthesis?
13: Yes, prosthesis is an external breast form that is made of silicone, as the name says. It is worn inside of a special mastectomy bra, which has a special pocket to keep it in nicely and safely and snugly. And, you know, this silicone prosthesis is like so close to the natural feel of your breast, the touch and feel of your breast. I always joke with my audience and say, you know, the silicone prosthesis, one of the main benefits is that it passes the hug test. In other words, if you hug me, you will not know that I'm wearing a silicone prosthesis. That's how natural it is. And I've been wearing one for almost 20 years now. I'm also a breast cancer survivor.
14: So who qualifies to receive it and how much does it cost?
13: Yes, you know these are quite expensive items, and they are mostly imported from other countries as well. So normally, it costs are an average of 950 rand for each one. And the Reach for Recovery is in the fortunate position that throughout this project and our Power of Pink campaign, we are able to purchase these from a supplier and provide them to our women who cannot afford it in underserved communities no medical fund at no cost at all. And we, that sometimes they like to give us a donation for it, but, you know, we don't send anybody away if they don't have a donation towards this processes. Also, In October, the mushrooms turn in pretty pink punnets. So we really encourage the public to buy those fresh mushrooms. And as an effect of their purchase, that would give the gift of hope to breast cancer survivors who cannot afford proceeds because part of the proceeds from each punnet that they buy and that is sold Part of that proceeds. One grant comes to the DECO
14: project. Why mushrooms and breast cancer? What's the link between the two? Yes,
13: well that is also based on research. In general, research studies around the world that shows that the consumption of more veggies and whole grains do reduce a woman's chances of getting breast cancer. Why mushrooms? Mushrooms in particular have been found to have breast cancer-fighting properties. And that is why it's so important that you take them in together with lots of other plant material. Now, the other interesting thing about the mushrooms, and this is what was found through research at universities in America and in China and Australia, is that most breast tumors are estrogen receptor positive. What does that mean? It means that they respond to estrogen and it also further means that estrogen makes them grow. And now you may wonder, Elizabeth, like what do the mushrooms do? Yeah, well, the mushrooms block the breast tumor estrogen
14: production. As a breast cancer survivor yourself, what do you think the key message should be this month as we mark Breast Cancer Awareness Month?
13: You know, our message is Reach for Recovery as an organization. We focus on supporting, on holding the hand of a new breast cancer patient so that she's encouraged and uplifted after the surgery. But our message is like we're urging women out there to check their breasts and to actually do that on a regular basis and to actually go to a medical professional or a clinic if they find something that is different, so that they can be properly checked or investigated and get the treatment that they may need to have.
2: That's Stephanie Jacobs, the Chairperson of Reach for Recovery in South Africa, talking to Elizabeth Lediga.
5: When I think back to my childhood, geographically, it reminds me of a time where I was black and only black and only struggling, but at the same time, always reaching for something more, something bigger in a South Africa that was hostile.
9: Hello, Africa. This is 1000 African Voices and I'm your host, Avurengui. Join me on Channel Africa every Thursday morning between 8 and 9, and on Saturday and Sunday morning between 9 and 10. Rise, Africa, rise.
2: Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. South Africa's President Cyril Ramaphosa has stressed that a new growth strategy needs to be adopted to turn the economy around. Ramaphosa said the country is taking firm action to grow the economy and create jobs. This week, the president revealed his new Economic Advisory Council. According to Ramaphosa, the council will aim to ensure greater coherence and consistency in the implementation of uh, economic policy and ensure that government and society in general are better equipped to respond to changing economic circumstances. The new Economic Advisory Council is also intended to build a capable state this is on the backdrop of rising unemployment and job crises facing the country. To help us analyse the situation, we have Professor Yanni Rousseau, the head of the School of Economic and Business Sciences at the University of Witwatersrand, and Professor Raymond Parsons, a professor at the Northwest University School of Business and Governance.
7: At this point in time, if we say he has a long game plan, the game plan that he's playing at must be communicated in a clearer context Mm. because admittedly he can have a long game plan but we have to have now as South Africans some understanding of the game plan that he's playing at. He's been in the position for more than a year. He's been elected, first he served out a previous term of Mr. Zuma, then elected into the position. But it's as if South Africans don't quite understand what the game plan is. The moment all of us can understand the game plan, all of us can work towards achieving this game plan. Mm. Yes, we know the game plan has elements of clean government, of ethical leadership, of uh, eradicating corruption of higher economic growth, etc., but give us a clearer game plan, and then all of us can play a more constructive role. Mm. I think the important
15: point here is that that it is it is correct. I think that uh, in good judgment, one plays a, a long game, uh, but one needs to understand that unfortunately, sometimes there are factors which press you press you to take short-term decisions, mm. Mm. and and one needs to get that balance right between things that have to be decided now even if they're unpopular but that feed into the long game because you need to understand that we're we are facing a situation where we are running out of time and money so there are things that have to be decided now which may not be easy to do but are necessary for the longer game to succeed and just as we like to say to business uh, often it cannot be business as usual in south africa mm. uh, or even in africa that neither can it be policy as usual and that will require leadership it's not just a, a, these are not just technical answers that that occur in plans uh, or in strategies in order to translate them into reality you actually need to show the necessary leadership supported by leadership from stakeholders. Let me say immediately, one's not putting all the onus onto government. But clearly, political leadership is the first among equals. And I think it's important that that, that, that collective leadership is there in order to get the message over to the country, we're all in the same boat. So let's steer in the right direction mm. and ensure that, that what, what collaborative action you need will be there, and for that we we look for an important role on the political side to take the tough decisions, to explain them, and to win as much cooperation as you can Mm. in order to make them happen. But you cannot assume that you can play this out indefinitely. There are some crucial decisions that have to be taken now rather than later Mm. so that the long game will succeed. Mm.
5: Now the conversation also around state-owned enterprises, whether we sell them, whether we keep them, we know that our uh, SOEs are not doing very well in the country, ESCOM for instance. Do you think that that conversation is one that should be had in terms of do we sell? Uh, What are the gains if we sell and what are are the gains if we keep?
7: Well, ESCOM is a special case, Ayanda. We have no option but to keep ESCOM and make ESCOM work. The country needs ESCOM, we need electricity, we have seen what happened in the first quarter of this year, when ESCOM had load shedding, the economy went into a tailspin, we had negative 3.1% economic growth. So ESCOM, yes, we clearly need. The others we need to take a critical look, I've said five years ago the government should simply give SAA away as it will not fly if government had given it away five years ago, we would have saved at least 20 billion rands by now. Mm -hmm. So we need to look at each state-owned enterprise in trouble. And I must stress, there are many state-owned enterprises that are not in trouble, depending on which source you believe. There are either 132 state-owned enterprises or 717 state-owned enterprises. Of course, we only focus on those that are in trouble and not well managed. And then we decide we don't need a national carrier. Mm-hmm. We just close SAA. It has become a vanity project for poli- for ANC politicians. We just close the Nell if we can't sell it. So those that are no, not m- mission critical, we simply need to close because they are too heavy a drain on South African taxpayers. Mm-hmm. But these will be tough decisions and we will need clear leadership to make these tough decisions. I think what's
15: important here is that In the National Executive Committee statement yesterday from the ANC, the ground did move a little on this issue. Mm. Uh, The door was opened uh, to saying we do have to accept and recognize the problems we're having with several of our state-owned enterprises. We cannot afford to run some of them as Mm. they are going now. And so hopefully when we get to the medium-term budget policy statement, That's where the rubber will hit the road, we'll see what decisions are actually taken. But the fact is that the door was opened in a way it was not open before, to say, look, we have to revisit, we recognize there is a problem, we can no longer afford to subsidize this problem, Mm. we're going to have to restructure. And that means thinking the unthinkable. And I think at least that door has now been opened, Mm. but we'll have to see, because the position was reserved by the Minister of Finance that he will encapsulate all this eventually at the end of the month in his medium-term budget policy statement.
2: And that's Professor Raymond Parsons, a professor at the Northwest University School of Business and Governance, and you also heard from Professor Yanni Rousseau, the head of the School of Economic and Business Science at the University of Witwatersrand, and they were speaking to Ayanda Kwanazi. It's time for us to cross on over to the... Uh, Money Desk right now, where Tracy Boomgaard is standing by to let us know what is happening in the economics news.
1: Thank you, Samora. Nigerian President Mohamedou Buhari has urged the South African government to relax its regulatory framework and make it easy for Nigerian companies to do business in the country. He was speaking at the opening of the ninth SA Nigeria Binational Commission underway at the Union Building in Pretoria. Buhari is in the country on a state visit in a bid to improve the frosty relations following attacks on foreign nationals and to strengthen trade and economic ties between the two nations. He said his country is open for business and implored Pretoria to do the same.
3: We are pleased to inform you that our government has made doing business in Nigeria easier through the ease of doing business initiative to open up more opportunities for investors in Nigeria. We call on the government of South Africa to also take steps to ease the doing of business in the country and open up its market space for Nigerian businessmen and women. In this context, we are gratified that a Nigeria South Africa Business Forum has been organized in the framework of this state visit.
1: The United Nations has urged African countries to reform their fiscal laws in order to enhance their tax revenues from the digital economy. The digital sector in Africa is growing by approximately 40% annually. This was said on the sidelines of the 7th Pan-African Conference on Illicit Financial Flows and Taxation. Africa has one of the lowest tax revenue to gross domestic product rates in the world. Zimbabwe's Reserve Bank is hoping to raise three hundred million US dollars since it resumed Treasury Bill auctions in August. Three previous auctions have so far raised one hundred and ninety million dollars. On Wednesday, the central bank flouted bills to the amount of three hundred million dollars. The bank has, however, been warned that there are concerns about excessive money supply growth, which can drive inflation. The standard bank purchasing managers index which measures private sector activity in south africa remained in contraction territory below 50 points in september coming in at 49.2 points this is the fifth consecutive month of contraction as new orders and output fell days of riots and looting in september in part of johannesburg and pretoria have added to overall uncertainty and unease over economic growth with the economy set to grow by less than 1% this year. South Africa's Mineral Resources and Energy Minister Gwede Mantashi says coal mining is the biggest revenue earner in the mining industry and it is here to stay. He says despite the move towards renewable energy, coal will remain part of the energy mix. Mantashi says provisions have been made for clean coal and nuclear in the integrated resource plan, which will be tabled at next week's cabinet meeting. If
6: we agree with mine owners to invest in technologies that make energy cleaner, we're going to have coal in here for the rest of our lives. Uh, In the IRP that we've released to cabinet, we've made provision for coal and said, put a rider, but coal must invest on clean coal technologies. We've made provision for nuclear, which is much hated by many, and we said to them today Kubek is the most reliable, most efficient and the most cost effective supplier of electricity in South Africa.
1: The US dollars trading at three hundred and fifty nine point eight eight Nigerian Naira, ten point nine zero Botswana Pula at one hundred and two point eight one Kenyan Shilling and at thirteen point zero one Zambian kwacha. In BRICS currencies, one U.S. dollar will cost you 4.14 Brazilian hail, 65.23 Russian ruble, 70.95 Indian rupee, 7.14 Chinese yuan, and at 15.29 South African rand. The U.S. dollar is also trading at 81 pence to the British pound and at 91 cents to the euro. Gold is trading at $1,498 and platinum at $886 per ounce. The price of Brent crude oil is $57.72 a barrel. For Channel Africa News, I'm Tracy Bumgard.
2: And right now, let's uh, cross it over to your sport. Here's Neto Chimani.
16: Thank you, Samara, from the Sports Desk. A very good afternoon. Starting off with athletics news. Alberto Salazar pushed himself to the brink and beyond as an athlete and preached the same philosophy as a coach to distance running stars. But the 61-year-old Cuban-born American will too. Well, well, will Finally, who finally went, we'll went too too far? According to the U.S. Anti-Doping Agency, USADA, which has banned him for four years for multiple doping violations. Salazar has been a major figure in the American athletics for four decades. He won the 1980, 1981 and 1982 New York Marathons and the 1982 Boston Marathon, and later coached such stars as the Britain's Mo Farah, the 2012 and 2016 Olympic champion, at 5,000 and 10,000 metres. Salazar arrived in the United States as a toddler. His father was a friend of Fidel Castro, who fought alongside him in the revolution, but later opposed the communist government. On to football news. Bafana, former Bafana Bafana midfielder Eric Tinkler says that watching Pesita grace some of the most significant football pitches in the world is a joy to behold, adding that the young striker had the ability now to draw the audiences back to South Africa. The 25-year-old Tau was all over television screens across the globe on Tuesday night when he helped his Belgian team at lab Bruges secure a compelling two-all draw, with Real Madrid at one of the most famous stadiums in the world. The Santiago Bernabeu in the European Champions League. Tinkler says it made him proud to watch the striker perform in the biggest club competition on the planet.
11: Great to see a South African back in a major competition such as the Champions League, because it bodes well not only to South Africa, uh, makes us proud as South Africans, but it but it uh, it helps the, this generation. Well, Footballers, because people start seeing Percy achieving good things playing in Europe now the eye starts coming towards South Africa I think that's what happened with us in 96 the eye turned to South Africa and a lot of players got opportunities to go play overseas
16: South African Premiership side Mamelodi Sundown's coach Bidzo Musimane says he is conflicted on who to back to win this season's MTN8 final between Highlands Park and Supersport United. The two sides will lock on in this season's first domestic cup final at Orlando Stadium in Soweto on Saturday evening. Mamelodi Sundown's coach is impressed with how far Owen Da has brought the Lions of the North.
6: I'm conflicted. I'll tell you why because uh, I like Owen, and and this team he took this team from 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 second division, first division. Sorry, he took this team from first division. After he takes it from first division, straight into top eight. The next year, when when everybody says the team that's getting promoted is contesting for relegation, no, straight into the top eight. They, they drew against us, they drew against Chiefs, they drew against Pirates last year. So it was a good sign for them to, to see that they are serious about it. The hard team, very, very hard team, hard running, very well-oiled machine, the German machine, that team, you know. But I also want
16: Kaitano because he was my former player, to to win also his first trophy. I think it's always good. Musimani, however, adds that he is leaning more towards Gaidano Dembo and his manner to lift the trophy, citing a tough draw for his neighbors. The coach also feels that winning the cup will buy Dembo more time in his job, as, lo- as local coaches are not as safe as their counterparts from outside the country if they are not doing, uh, if they are not doing well. I don't like this thing of coaches being sacked. All the time, But so I I I don't want
6: uh, uh, him to lose a job because our South African coaches I have been sacked and they're losing job to to, to coaches from outside. I'm not saying he must not have coaches from outside. Okay, I'm being too patriotic. I look after my people because I'm, a, I'm, I'm born and bred here and I was raised in the township. So they also deserve a chance. So I don't want Kaitano to lose his job. And I think for him to hang around a little bit, it will give him a cushion if he wins. Owen will never be sacked if he doesn't win the MTN8. He has done very well for that club. So I lean a little bit more to Caetano. We need to share. And Caetano deserves it. He played a very hard game against us. They played the way they always play, which is good.
16: And he deserves to win the final. Why not? And finally, in rugby news, Japan coach Jamie Joseph has made three changes to the starting side, who stunned Ireland for this weekend's Rugby World Cup Pull 8 lash with Samoa. The hosts who toppled the Irish last week have recalled a talismanic leader Michael Leach as they look to make it three wins out of three against the Pacific Islanders on Saturday in Toyota. Despite Leach's return, open side flanker Lapis Labuskachne returns the unbent after an impressive first run out as keeper against Ireland. Atushi Sagate comes in as starting hooker for the brave Blossoms and wimpy Van der Walt at lock, while veteran Luke Thompson has been left out of the 23 match. Shota Hori drops it to the bench after his man of the match display against Ireland, when Japan produced the shock of the tournament by winning 1912. Thank you for choosing Channel Africa for channel Africa sport Amneto and Itio Ochimani.
1: This is Africa Digest.
2: That wraps up Africa Digest for this hour. We're back again in an hour at 1900 hours Central African time. But for comments on the show, do send us an email to info at channelafrica.co.za or send us a WhatsApp message to plus 27763003327 and you can tweet us at channelafrica1. Taking us to the top of the hour is Aglaleki by Something Soweto featuring Shasha, Tj Maporisa and Gabzota Small. We'll see you again later.
14: They
9: bought a